0: Okay the Parsha of qisaitse is uh, <clears throat> fairly bristling with mitzvahs, really uh, jam packed and uh, we'll ty- try and take a meaningful look at um, a small number of them and we'll begin as is often recommended in the very beginning qisaitse la Melchama le Vecha, the the opening posuk reads you go out to to war Unsano biodecha, and will deliver the enemy uh, into your hand with shavisa shivyo, and you will capture capture captives from the enemy. And this, of course, is the mitzvah of aches yifas toar, of this uh, woman that uh, he takes a liking to. He meets her in, in battle. She's this beautiful woman, and there's a whole procedure as to how it is possible to. Uh, initiate a relationship with her, and ultimately to, to bring her in and to marry her. I'll mention at the outset a very striking comment of the Meshachachma, uh, and it's, it's about <coughs> really just how to intone the words in the Pasuk, as is so often the case. Pasuk Aleph again, that is to say the first Pasuk again to read te levecha, when you go out to war and Hashem will deliver the enemy into your hands Vishavisa shivyo, and you will capture captives from there, captive or captives and the question is how to understand the meaning of these words Vishavisa Shivyo? what are they what are they coming to say? Are they merely descriptive in nature? In other words, this is just setting the scene uh, if there's no captives, there is no ashashifast tawar so it's purely just introducing says meshama Vishavisa shivyo, and you will take captives from them is not just describing it is stipulating that you. Take captives from them, but not them from you. The emphasis of a Shavisa is you are doing the capturing and not being captured yourself. Why is that significant? What difference would it make? Says Meshachachma, because if you take captives from them, but they also take captives from you, it could reach a situation where you will need to exchange prisoners. And if that's the case, then you're not entitled to engage in the mitzvah that's called Eishasyefas Torah. You don't have the luxury or the opportunity to, to to marry this woman. She may be needed, because if they have one of ours and we have one of theirs, so then there may be other concerns. And thus the Pasuk introduces by saying, Vishavisa Shivyo, it is a condition. This whole thing only begins, it only gets off the ground if you, if you are the ones who captured from them, but they didn't capture any from you. It's a big chiddush. It comes straight from the pasuk, really the way the Meshachachim is reading, because it would have halachic implications. If we, if we take it uh, as it is stated, it is a limitation or a qualification on the mitzvah of Esheth, yifas Torah. Uh, I, I would add, uh, it is a very uh, optimistic, view of the situation uh, to portray that uh, one of theirs would be exchanged for one of ours, but uh, in any case, that's uh, clearly more of a, a practical uh, matter, Let's But these, this is the big chiddush of a Meshachah, it's a stipulation that uh, you capture from them and not for you. But Rashi, of course, quotes for us the famous words of Chazal. Uh, and this is in possegut alafera isa bashiv ya if you see among the captives this is a beautiful woman the and you desire her velo isha. and you 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 can take her as a wife and you will take her as a wife and here rashi interjects what exactly is the torah doing here is the torah commanding you to take her as a wife is the torah recommending that you take her as a wife says rashi no and no. Quoting the Gemara. Lo Torah ela keneged yetsahara. The Torah here speaks only with recognition of the yetsahara. Sheim matira is <laughs> enob if Hashem didn't say that she's permitted, he'd probably marry her anyway. That's the nature of the situation, however you would describe it, the heat of battle, the nature of war. So there is no no, because if Hashem says no, he'll do it anyway. And in recognition of this, Hashem said it's permitted. That's a big of uh, understandably. Parenthetically, Rabbi Cheskel Abramsky, or as we would call him in London, Diane Abramsky, Um, He used to have a number of students that would um, congregate by him, and he would give them a shir uh, once a week. And on one occasion, I believe it was Pashas Kiseitse and uh, and, uh, the students would sometimes say, the mitzvahs, they're difficult, I mean, these were not yet necessarily such so-from. And on one occasion, as Parshas Kisetser Abramsky says, you should know that the notion that a mitzvah can be difficult, a mitzvah can be difficult, but to say that it's too difficult, that is refuted by the beginning of Parshas Kisetser. Because you see that in the one instance where the Torah says it is too difficult, it permitted it, which teaches you by inference or by implication that all the things that the Torah didn't permit, it may be difficult. It's never too difficult. That was a classic uh, comment of Rav of, of Abramsky to those young men <clears throat> at that time. But in any case, we come back to this Kiddush. The Torah says that um, if the Torah doesn't permit, so that so the person is liable to do it anyway, and therefore the Torah says, okay. But Rashi continues. But you should know, as much as the Torah has permitted it, this is not a blessed match. This is not the start of a beautiful friendship. Because in Nisaa, if he does marry her, he can. He's permitted. But you should know what will come from it. So for Leo Sona, in the end, he will, he will hate her. Look at the very next section. Shenei Ma'acharav, after uh, the Eishas Yifas Torah, the following P'sukim, Kitiyena Le'ish. The whole situation, when a person has two wives, one he likes, one he doesn't like, the one he doesn't like is gonna be this Aisha Syfhas Torah. No good will come of it. And you should know more. mena ben Umorah. And you know what their child is gonna turn out to be like a ben Sora Umora, because that's the next section in the Torah. Aisha Torah, this woman, hated wife, and Ben Sera Umura, the, the wayward son, says, Rashi, be aware. That's what's waiting for you. Which means that when the Torah says, which again, it's permitted, but it's not encouraged. And once again, we come back to the question of how to read the psukim, how to, the word is the same, and you shall take. But there's so many different ways to intone the words, and you shall take. Or to put it perhaps operatically, here, it's not a fortissimo. It's a sotto voce. The Torah says, you want it, you can have it, but, but you, you, you've been warned what will come from it. And as Rav Kupperman, my uncle Rav Kuperman Zatzal uh, pointed out, it's, the flow of the Rashi itself is very interesting, because Rashi dis- gets involved in what we call smichos partios, juxtapossession of, of, of uh, sections, the woman, the two wives, ben Sora Rashi's comments of Smichas Parshaos are always at the beginning of those Parshaos, as befits them, because they are general comments about the Parsha in general. Here, Rashi doesn't make this comment uh, at the beginning of the section. It's tucked away in the second half of his comment on the word V'lokakhta. That's unusual. That's an unusual geographical situation for Rashi. What's a Smikras parashius, juxtaposition of sections, comment doing in the middle of a comment about something else? But here, Av Kuperman says, you see that Rashi's main goal here is not to talk about the juxtaposition of sections. His main goal is to explain that when the Torah says, V'lo in the second posok, and you take her, it's giving you permission. But it's a concession. It's not a recommendation. That's Rashi's main goal. To support that interpretation, Rashi says, take a look at what comes next. One wife is hated, that's her. Ben-Sorah umura. So it's interesting, again, you see the, the, the balance here. The gravity, the center of gravity is not on Smichus Parshios. That's not the primary issue at all. But rather it's to explain that the word velokarta uh, is Bediyevet, as we would say, not that's Rav Kuperman's classic observation regarding the wording of Rashi. And, and once again, a reminder for us how careful we need to be when uh, looking at Rashi, not only to pay attention to what he says, but where he says it and what he says it together with. That's called the study of Rashi. Just one final uh, comment on this Eishat Shifastora before we move on, it's, re- it's very, very uh, striking uh, hard to know if it's pshat. It's a Chasidish avort, but as is often the case, even when they're not pshat, which can happen, always thought provoking. Rashi quoted the Gemara as saying, in this Aisha Shefas Toar case, this beautiful woman in war, Lo dibra Torah el keneged The Torah only spoke keneged hara. What does keneged mean? Keneged means against. But this doesn't sound like it's against the Yetzirah. It sounds like a complete capitulation. It sounds like an absolute allowance. I mean, if that's resistance, so then what does support look like? In what way is this connected? You simply allowed it. Says Rabbi Meir of Premishlan, one of the great Hasidic masters, sometimes... <clears throat> A person is in such a situation, it seems like there's no stopping them. And if you say no, it will only make it worse. Because then there's a rebellious side And then People don't like to be told what to do, especially in, in, in situations such as this. So, what, so what, what are your options? You're out of options. You can't say no. Says so the mayor, you're not out of options. You know what the Torah does? It makes it a mitzvah. That might slow the person down. Because if the person is in rebellious mood and the Torah forbids it, so then he, he, will, he will step forth even more, further away. But if the Torah commands it to the degree that it does, so he says, I want to marry this girl, and we say, yeah, it's actually a mitzvah. Say, oh, really? Oh, um, it could actually take the wind out of his sails. It's such an interesting comment because you have two dynamics going on. There's the personal physiological element between him and this girl and then there's the more ideological element his relationship with mitzvahs sometimes the only way you can stop a person from doing the wrong thing, make it into a mitzvah he might back down, you never know <clears throat> moving on a little bit uh, into Kiseitzi, we are treated to another iteration of the, the mitzvah of of returning lost property and that's in Peric let's take a look there Parakaf Beis, pasuk (coughs) Aleph. Okay, the pasuk reads, Lotir e es shor achicha oet seyon nidachim. Do not look on and see your brothers, uh, <coughs> his ox, or his sheep, nidachim, wandering around and just ignore them. You've got to give it back. That is the mitzvah of Hashavas Aveda. And the first thing I'd like to note with regards to the phraseology of the mitzvah <coughs> is that the person who lost the object is called Achicha, your brother. That's interesting. Well, he is your brother. If he's Jewish, he's your brother. That may well be. <coughs> but when we compare and contrast this introduction with returning lost property when we originally saw it, when is the first time the Torah speaks about Hashabah Savedah in Pashas Mishpatim? And there he's not called your brother. He's, he's actually called Oyvecha your enemy, which means, among other things, even if he's your enemy, you still have to do the right thing. So there's a different type of message there. But here we see that he's introduced as Achicha. What is the atmospheric import of introducing this mitzvah by calling the one who lost the property your brother? And there is a classic explanation here from Rablaib Minsberg, Zatzal, in his Sefer Ben Melech. We've noted it in the past in other contexts. Each time you come back to it, it has a different angle to it. He explained that the five Chumashim are not merely a a convenient, quote unquote, way of dividing the Torah up into five more manageable portions. Rather, each Chumash relates HaKadosh Baruch Hu to us in a slightly different way. There's many angles, as we say, Chumash Barashas, Hashem is our Creator. Chumash Shamos, Hashem is our Redeemer. Chumash Vayikra, Hashem is our God. Chumash Bamidbar, Hashem is our King. We say in, in the Musaf of Shabbos, all these elements, Hu who Hu Vinu, Hu Malkeinu, who moshienu. it really is a multifaceted Relationship And Chumash Bamidbar, as we discussed, I believe, even this year earlier on, it really emphasizes our relationship to Hashem as our king. Hashem is called our king for the first time in Chumash <laughs> <in laughs> Bamidbar. Utruas Melech Bo, words that were said by Bilaam and Parshas Balak, it's the first time you have Hashem called Melech over the Jewish people. And Chumash Bamidbar is where you have the Chatzotzeros, which are very uh, royal, regal, realistic way of communicating the king's wishes to the people through trumpets. And you have the flags and the camps and many, many things, as we discussed at the time. The trappings of, of, of royalty are in Chumash Bamidbar. And where does that leave Chumash Devarim, the Chumash at hand? Of Minsberg, Chumesh Devarim, relates to Hashem as our Father, as Hu Avinu. And once again, Hashem is referred to as our Father for the first time in Chumesh Devarim. Halohu Avicha Konecha we say in Parshas Hazinu. And we are referred to as His children. Banim atem Lashem we say in Parshas Re'e. So He is your Father, you are His children, and that introduces an entirely new atmosphere to to the mitzvahs and to our relationship with Hashem. That's why love of Hashem is mentioned uh, for the first time in Chumash Tevarim. Hashem's love for us, even the way Hashem ch- chastises you, it's the way a father chastises a child. That's what Moshe says. All of these are very... Developing the, the, the father and son relationship. What does that have to do with, with our discussion, with our present discussion? says of Minsberg, it does one further step to be made. Because depending on the way that you look at your relationship with Hashem, it will determine and illuminate the way you look at your relationship with other Jews. If Hashem is your king, other Jews are your fellow citizens. If Hashem is your God, other Jews are your co-religionists. But if Hashem is your father, then other Jews are your brothers and sisters. And because Chumash Devarim is introducing and developing the relationship between us and Hashem as a father to children, it then also releases a new dimension of our relationship with each other as brothers and sisters. And, And the implications for the mitzvahs can be seen as well giving back lost property. It's not the first time it's mentioned in the Torah, as we, as we referred to just before. We already have it in, Chumash in Parshas Mishpatim and in Chumash Shemos. Quite so. But there's a difference between them. And that's why they're divided up. Because you have the Chumash Shemos element in Chumash Shemos and the Chumash Devarim element in Chumash Devarim of the same mitzvah. How so? Giving back lost property is certainly something that one can relate to. Even as an obligation, one should certainly do it. If, if a person lost something and you have it, you should give it back to them. Don't just keep it. That may well be. And that's as far as it goes in Chumash Shemos. But our Parsha says something much more. Because what if you don't know who lost it? I mean, even good citizenship has its limits. The But what if, he's, what, if he's not, what if you don't know whose it is? You have this lost object. I'm fully prepared to give it back, but I don't know who to give it back to. So, so a good citizen at that point will say, well, I've done, I'm, I'm, what else do you want from me? And the answer is, as a good citizen, maybe nothing. But as a brother of the person who lost it, there's more to be done. Bring it in, bring it into your house, take it in, and keep it so until he comes looking for it. That's already a level beyond what uh, you know, good, good citizenship would or citizenry would uh, would require. And therefore, it's it's a it's a classic example of how elements of the mitzvah. Which really emphasise the, the sibling relationship between Jews. That's why they're in Chumash Tevarim. and that's why the Torah introduces it by saying, "Shor uh, Achicha," it's the, 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 the ox of your brother. That's the, the new dimension within within Chumash that's the Reblei of Mintzberg. And really, if one could ever say hafokhba v'hafokhba, the more you think about that principle or that idea, the more you, you, you illuminate different passages. In Midbar, in Divarim, it's really quite something. An equally striking, in a, or in a very different way, though, explanation of being called chicha here is from meshechachma again. There is no stopping the meshechachma. And he raises the question in our parsha, just to reiterate, it refers to the one who lost it as a chicha, as your brother. But earlier on, he's not called a chicha, he's actually called Oyvecha. Which is a bit of a shocking term. Your enemy. You shouldn't have enemies. But, uh, seemingly, well, why is the Torah talking about things in this way? It refers there in Mishpatim to Olvecha, your enemy's son Echa, the one who hates you, or you hate them. Well, where is all this coming from? And the Gemara itself raises the question: Why you have? Well, you shouldn't have enemies. Why is the Torah talking in this way? The Gemara in Maseches Pesachim Daf Kuf Yud and the Gemara says, you know what? Sometimes it is acceptable. To make an enemy of someone. If that person is violating mitzvot of the Torah. You are entitled to make an enemy out of them. Interestingly, you still have to give back their lost property. They don't forfeit their property rights. Just because they're your enemy. But they ha- can have that classification. You're allowed to hate them. So says the Gemara. Says Meshachachma. That pasuk. Is written in Parshas Mishpatim. Parshas Mishpatim is before the Cheta Egel. Before the Cheta Egel if someone is doing something wrong there is such a gulf between him and you that you are entitled to distance him and, and, and even to dislike him because he's in the wrong and you're in the right. Says Meshach that is only true in Pashas Mishpatim. By the time we get to Chumich the Jewish people have had so many mishaps. And again, we don't like to count them, and we're not saying that their, their good times didn't outnumber, because we highlight often, the, the, the bad, but there were so many fools. Says Meshachachma, if you see someone doing something wrong, he's not your enemy, he's your brother. Because by this stage, you yourself might not be in such good shape. And the and it's only the moral distance that would ever entitle a person to have what you could call this pure hatred. And I use pure, the word pure in the pure sense of the word, in other words, a, a, a religiously uh, motivated hatred. But you've got to be absolutely on level in order to be entitled quote unquote to 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 hate a person who's doing the wrong thing. But if there's enough wrong with you, then for most people, says Mechachama, you look at a person and and they're doing something wrong, I hesitate to use the term me too, but uh, you, have, you might have a lot more in common with them than, than, you, than you might think. And therefore, they are nothing other than your brother. The principle of hating a person if you're doing something wrong, says Meshachachmah, is by this stage restricted to so few people. As Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai says in the Gemara in Sukkah, I've seen people who are spiritually ascendant, they are woefully few. If you're one of those few, says Meshachachma, good for you. You can continue with Pasha's Mishpatim rules. But for the rest of us, or for most of us, he's not your enemy anymore. He's your brother. Everyone's in it together. Everyone could do a little bit better. An unbelievable uh, statement. And what's so fascinating, as is often the case with Meshachachma, it's based on the Gemara, because it's the Gemara's definition of he's your enemy because he's, he's doing our virus. But then he comes back to the Pasuk. That, I think, is perhaps one could say is a trademark of the Meshachachma. We are trained to go from the Pasuk, if you're doing the right thing, and it's a good thing, to go from the Pasuk, learn the Pshat, and then go from there to the Gemara. But you might never look back. And Meshachma always looks back, as if to say, learn the Pasuk, go to the... go, And now come back to the Pasuk, see if things look different now. Because the notion of paying attention to the location of Parshas Mishpatim, as opposed to Chum Devarim, that is a Pasuk issue, that's a Pshad issue. And that's the blend, which really is very much trademark of Meshachachma. Okay, so we've had two explanations as to why in our Parsha, the one who lost the item is called and what do you do if you don't know who he is? Take it in until he comes to claim it. But of course, he needs to do more than claim it. He needs to. Uh, he needs, he you, you need a basis to give it back to him. And what is that basis? So, as we know, it's called simanim. Identifying features, identifying marks. The way that it goes is <coughs> that he lost. You would put up a notice, and the notice would say, "Such and such was lost." And then he would come, and based on being able to identify things that he wouldn't know were he not the one to have lost it, that is sufficient basis to give it back. And that's the classic uh, process or procedure of <coughs> Ashavasaveda. I remember. Uh, just actually a few months ago, my son, uh, Yoni was at the time six years old, so he they 'd been learning about Hashavah Saveda and he was delighted to come across uh, a toy that was lost. It was a toy gun, and it was in the lobby of our building. So he straight away wanted to put up a petek for for Saveda. so i I took the opportunity to uh, school him in in how to do it, as if to say don 't tell them what it is because they need to tell you that's the way if you tell them everything about it. So just, just say a toy was found. So he kind of got the hang of it pretty quickly. So as, I was, as we were writing a toy was found, he says to me, don't tell them what color it is. We don't want to be giving them any ideas. So <clears throat> he, he got the sense of not too much information. And that is the concept of simanim, of identifying um, marks or uh, features. But the important question, just for a moment to go a bit deeper, and we're so familiar with this concept, and it really is an incredible thing. What happens when the person produces these identifying marks? Why does that mean you give it back to them? So we might be inclined to say, well, because it means that it's theirs. It means that it's theirs, that is to say it proves that it's theirs. But that's not true. Being able to to provide these identifying features does not prove that they're the owner. It would only prove that they're the owner if there's no way they could know about these things were they not the owner. But there are other ways, I mean, conceivably. Uh, they may have seen the owner uh, drop it before you picked it up, so they had a chance to take a good look, or so, that, so they, they could describe it exactly, it's not theirs. They may have heard the owner asking, has anyone seen my lost object which is such and such? And they may have taken careful note and they could identify it down to... Uh, to the decimal point so so it's not proof positive that it's his just because they can identify it what is true is that it, it would be unlikely that he would know were he not the owner unlikely and impossible are not the same thing if it's impossible that he would know if he was not the owner then knowing is proof that he's the owner If it would be unlikely for him to know, if he's not the owner, that means that he is likely to be the owner. And based on that likelihood, you can give him the object. And that really is much more following the concept that we call rove, the majority. Majority means it is more likely to be this way than that way. And following the majority is a general principle in Torah. The problem is... We follow the majority in every area except for money. When it comes to money, we say, If you wish to extract money from someone, you have to prove it. So we chose the, we're in a Shlemazel situation. We chose the one area of Torah where where we don't follow the majority. And yet we seem to be following the majority when we we return a lost object based on Simani. But the answer is very simple. And that is, when we say that you need to prove it in order to extract money from someone, that's when that person claims to be the owner of the money. You need to prove otherwise. They're what's called muhsak. They are the presumed owner. Presumed ownership is very powerful. If you wish to make them give it up, you need to prove it. Lahavdil, in English, they say possession is nine-tenths of the law. But as far as the Torah is concerned, It's more than nine-tenths of the law. It's it's 99.9% of the law because anything less than 100%, the person can still keep it. However, in a lost property situation, the one that you're claiming it from never claims to be the owner. He's looking for the owner. No one is holding the object and saying, this is mine until you prove otherwise. Because by definition, he he won't be the first to admit that this isn't his. He just wants to find the right one. So we have an object in flux, it's not in the possession of someone who claims to be the owner, and therefore we have in the one situation where even when it comes to money we're finally able to follow the majority, which we do in terms of giving credence to these simonim, these identifying marks. So that's just a, a, a nugget from the world of the dynamics of, of how our Shavah Saveda works in terms of the general principles of money. I'll just conclude this uh, part of the discussion. With a, a fascinating comment on a posak in Tehilim. Because David Hamelech himself refers to himself as a lost object. In the end of Tehilim Kufyud Test, chapter 119. It's that long, long chapter of Tehilim, 176 Psukim, eight per for each of the twenty-two uh, letters of the Aleph And the final Posik, I believe it's the final posak, he says, Ta'isi with a taf. I have wandered around like a lost sheep. Seek out your, seek out your servant. So that's very interesting. That Dovah HaMelech himself says, I'm lost. But sometimes when an object is lost, the owner needs to go looking for it. But in terms of our discussion, we may add that if the owner does go looking for it, he can expect to find it as long as he can identify it. When I lost it, it looked like such and such. It has such and such properties, such and such features. I think it's fair to say, <coughs> over the course of the year, as we discussed a little bit uh, last last week, as we we drift a bit, so perhaps we we ourselves get a little lost. But in the days ahead of us, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I think it's correct to say that a primary part of the avoda of those days is to be sure that we answer to the identifying features and marks, and values, and characteristics, that if Hashem comes looking for us, He can find us based on those things. And that really is much, uh, a, a great deal of, of what is happening during these, uh, these illuminating days, what we call the Yamim Narayim. We need to be sure that our Simanim. When we speak about Simanim uh, on Rosh Hashanah, we normally speak about those foods that we have on the Rosh Hashanah night, but uh, it could be that no less important are the Simanim as they uh, identify us, that uh, when a Kodesh Baruch comes looking to reclaim us on the day of kingship, he should be able to find us without too much trouble. <clears throat> From here, let's move to uh, a further section in the Parsha, which is Amoni Umo'avi, Avi, the, these, the famous uh, prohibition against those two nations. This is in Peric Kaf Gimel Pasuk Dalet. Let's take a look now. Perik Kaf Gimel Pasuk Dalet. And there are actually a few either individuals or groups who are barred from entering into the Jewish people. And important to emphasize that when we talk about these people, they can't enter into the Jewish people. It means they can't marry into the Jewish people. They can themselves become Jewish. And among them is in Pasuk, Per Kaukimel, Pasuk Dalet, yavo Amoni avi B'Kahal Hashem that in Ammonia, Moavi, they cannot enter, they say, to marry into the Jewish people. Famously, of course, this refers only to the males, not to the females. That's why Rus, who was herself from Moav, we say Moavivla, Moavis, there was no problem with her to marry Boaz. Happily for her, Boaz knew this because he was the head of the Sanhedrin. and Gamdor Asiri, it's even 10th generation, They can never, ever marry into the Jewish people. Why not? The Torah provides two explanations. The first, Because it is over the matter that they did not come to meet you with bread, with water, when you're on your way leaving Mitzrayim. That is the first reason offered. Second, and that, and that which he, uh, hired. he hired, Bilaam, he hired Bilam to curse you and to bring about everything up to you and including your destruction. The next posse says Hashem didn't allow it to happen, but he wanted it to happen. These therefore are the two reasons that Ammon Umoav can never marry into the Jewish people. And many commentators look at these two reasons and find it difficult to see a parity between them or any form of equation bet- between them. After all, with all due respect to the Lechem of Amaim, I mean, okay, they didn't make a kiddush for you when you, when you came out of Mitzrayim, they should have uh, made a reception, or one could have expected them to, they didn't do it, okay, they didn't do it. But how can that be, be held up as an equivalent or a parallel distancing reason to the fact that they tried, they actively sought out your complete obliteration? How can these two be, be put on the same level? And there's many explanations uh, as to the, the uh, synergy between the, the, the two reasons. But a classic explanation is to be found in the Sefer Be'er Yosef. Be'er Yosef by Rabbi Yosef Salant, one of the great Chachmei Yerushalayim in the 1900s. And he says, if you wish to understand, it's a very straightforward thing that he says, but it, it really illuminates. If you wish to understand how these two reasons go together, the place to look is actually in Rashi, a couple of psukim later, where uh, you have two other groups that are distanced from marrying to the Jewish people. Pasuk Ches, Lotasaev Adomi Lotus Lotasaev Mitzri kigera Yissa Be'artzo, it talks about our relationship with someone from Edom who becomes Jewish and wants to marry into the Jewish people. Someone from Egypt who becomes Jewish wants to marry into the Jewish people. What about them? Says the Pasuk, Banim ashii vodulahem dor The third generation, once they've been naturalized, so to speak, for three generations, then they can marry into the Jewish people. So let's ask a, a simple question. How come, what's the, what, what's the difference between them? Why is it that Amonu Moav can never marry in? No amount of generations will naturalize them. While uh, Mitzri and Adomi can marry in after three generations. And Rashi says something, it has, it's, it's, it's truly remarkable. Says Rashi in Passochres, because with everything they did, and, and of course what the Egyptians did to us needs no elaboration, even though we elaborate on it uh, whenever we can, But, but it's not permanent. Why? Says Rashi. Because they gave you, they gave you, they took you in at a difficult time. They took you in during famine. And that has to be recognized. And really just to take a moment to pause and reflect on what Rashi is saying, and it's not not from Rashi, it's from Chazal, Rashi is quoting it. What we're saying is that with all of the horror that uh, Egypt perpetrated on the the Jewish people, and none of it goes uh, unanswered, but if there's a positive aspect or a positive element ever, it will not, it doesn't just get pushed aside. Nothing is ever forgotten. And it will find its mark that they're also distanced. But after three generations, we recall, initially, they provided shelter for the Jewish people. That has to be the most optimistic portrayal of, of uh, Egypt that one could ever expect to find. But it never gets forgotten. And therefore says Be'er Yosef, come back to Amonu Moab. When they're barred, it's permanent. When Egypt is barred, it's temporary. But when amun is barred, it's permanent. Why? Says Beir Yosef, because there's nothing to mitigate on their behalf. There's no positive element. And therefore, it's purely negative. This is the way that the two reasons that the Torah gives work together, as if to say, the primary reason, not surprisingly, uh, that they can't marry into the Jewish people is because they tried to destroy you through the agency of Bilam. That is a massive strike against them and it results in they cannot marry into the Jewish people. However, were, were it to have been the case that they came out to meet you when you left Egypt and they brought you refreshments, it would have made a difference. It would have served as a mitigating factor And the ban of marrying into the Jewish people would not have been permanent. Just as with the Egyptians, you have a mitigating factor. It takes it from permanent to temporary. And therefore, if one could phrase it hopefully as as clearly as possible, when we talk about them not bringing you out food and water, that's not a reason why they can't marry in. That's a reason why the actual reason is permanent and not temporary, because there is no counter value of any positive uh, experience that we had with them, there's nothing to take the ban of them marrying to the Jewish people from down from permanent to temporary. And so it stays permanent as indeed it does. So the, that is the Be'er Yosef's explanation. Again, a great deal to say the Torah is so explicit here. They did this and they did this, really beckoning us to, to, to contemplate how these two things go together. Just to uh, mention in passing, I just saw it today, so it's fresh in my mind. Again, it's a Hasidische Shavort, but um, really, uh, again, very uh, striking. And that is in Pasuk Vav. So we've quoted Pasuk Dalit which says, Amun can never marry into the Jewish people. And Pasuk Hay gives the reasons. Because they did this, and they did this. They didn't bring you out bread and water, and they hired Bilam. But then the, fa- the, the, the Pasuk continues, Pasuk Vav, the ava Hashem Hashem didn't want to listen to Bilam. V'yafok Hashem l-cha esaklala livracha. And Hashem reversed for you, that is to say, for your benefit, the curse to blessing, which we know, of course, happened. You read Parsha's Balak, you hear only blessings. He wanted to curse, it was reversed into blessing. Hashem because Hashem, your God, loves you. And the question, which is raised by one of the Hasidic greats, the Degel Machaneh Ephraim. I think this is the first time we have ever quoted him. The Degel Machaneh Ephraim was a grandson of the Balshemtov, and his sefer was one of the first uh, Hasidic works to be printed. It remains a classic. And he asks, a, 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 well, actually, I wouldn't call it a Yekisha uh, question because that would be too cross-cultural. But he asks a, a point of precision. The pasuk says, Hashem reversed for you the curse to blessing. Ask the Dega Of course it was for you. What, what is that word, Lecha, adding? Had the pasuk says, He wanted to curse you, but Hashem turned the curse into blessings, obviously it's all directed to us. And therefore the word Lecha is implied, it's self understood. Why does the Torah explain? Explicate the word Lacha. Says Degamachner Ephraim. Bilam wanted to curse the Jewish people and in the end he gave them blessings. Who is the beneficiary of those blessings? We are, apparently. But there's room to say that maybe someone else should be the beneficiary. Bilam. Why? Because Hashem didn't Hashem tell Avram way back in parashas lech lecha and representing then his progeny the jewish people Va'avaracha i will bless those who bless you or those who curse you i will curse so whoever curses avram or pardon me whoever blesses avram or whoever blesses the uh, descendants of avram they themselves will be blessed enter bilam he blessed the descendants of Avra. he gave them stellar blessings. And therefore he would now like to, 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 to turn up and claim his own blessings. As per, says the Torah, no. Thus far he cannot go because his intention was to curse them. HaKadosh Baruch reversed them into blessings, but he reversed them into blessings for you. Lecha, as far as you're concerned, not as far as Bilam is concerned. Bilam remained with his, judged by his original intention to curse, and therefore he himself was cursed as became his age. His, his end. And that's the wonderful uh, interpretation of the Dega and Ephraim on the Torah's emphasis of the word Hashem uh, reversed Lecha for you, but not for Bilam himself. There's no Vavarucham or Varechecha being handed out on that occasion. Certainly a classic uh, nugget there from, from the, uh, the Dega and Ephraim. So we have time just for one final um, point, our discussion, and that will be the, I'd like to go back to the mitzvah of Kansipur, the famous mitzvah, the the, the mother bird, the the, the nest, and that is to be found in Perik Kaf Beis Pasuk Vav. And it's Tupsukim, Perik Kaf Kaf Beis Pasuk Vav ki kare kanzi pole fanecha badereh should you happen upon uh the bird's nest al if it's on the way bkhaleh solart if it's on a, uh, it's in a tree if it's on the ground efro chuma betsim young uh, birds young chicks or uh, eggs bimer betset ala fachim ola betsim and the mother is hovering over them loti kahem al habani You cannot take them both together, the mother together with the young. Rather, you have to send away the mother, and uh, take the young for you. And that, the Torah promises good things, it will be good for you. This is the well-known mitzvah of Kansipur, not to take the mother together with the young, but rather to send her away, and then to take the young. This Mitzvah of Kansipur is the subject of a famous Mishnah. It's on a famous list in the Mishnah. A list of things that if people say them, we quiet them. There's only three things on that list in the Mishnah. I I dare say the list has gotten a little longer over the course of time, but uh, that might be for other reasons. Uh, But what does the uh, Mishnah tell us? It's actually twice in Shas in Masoretic uh, Hebrew you have it in the end of the fifth peric. Haomer al kansi por yagira chamecha If a person says your mercy extends talking to Hashem your mercy extends to the mother bird also, we tell him to be quiet It's one of three things that we tell him to be quiet The others if he says your name you Hashem your name should be mentioned for good things and if he says modim modim if he says modim twice we tell him to be quiet the Gemara says he may mean well, but modem modem, especially if there's sensitivity to what might be perceived as two addresses for his religious gratitude, two are not better than one in that, uh, in that context. And if he says Hashem should be remembered over good. And whose name should be remembered over bad? It comes from somewhere else. These are very interesting situations where the person, he only means well, but he's not alert or alive to the negative implications that were misunderstandings that could come out from, from the things that he said. But what is the wrong? What's objectionable with him saying that Hashem's mercy extends to the, to the mother bird? So the Gemara gives two explanations, but the better known ex- of those two is, in the words of the Gemara, Mipnei osa midosa of Rachamim, he's making Hashem's ways into mercy. <inaudible> but they're not, they are none other than divine decrees. That's what's so objectionable. Here he is explaining that the Kansipur, the mother bird, is all about mercy. And that's a mistake, says the Gomorrah That's not true. And it's such a mistake. It is silence-worthy mistake. Hmm. So what is the moral of the story here? The takeaway message here is if you ever hear someone trying to explain a reason behind the mitzvah, as reasonable as it may sound, you are to silence them. This, as we know, is not true. In other words, we have traditions from Chazal themselves, until our times, of people who advanced reasons for mitzvahs, entire works that are dedicated to reasons for mitzvahs. Of course, we, we bring to mind the Sefer Achinuch. Every mitzvah is presented with some type of reason. The third section of the Ramam's Nevuchim provides reasons for, 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 for the mitzvahs. And, and it goes on. Chazal themselves, as we said, in the Mishnah. Chazal provide a, a, a reasons for mitzvahs, and, and also in the Gemara. So what are we to make of all of this? What's the way forward? How can, how can can Why did no one silence them? Apparently it's acceptable. But what about the Mishnah, which says we silence a person who tries to do this? Says the Tosos Yomtov, the great Rabbi Yomtov Lipman Heller and his parish Tosos Yamtov on the on the Mishnayas. I remember hearing from my father, that's how many years ago, the Tosas Yamthav was a Talmud of the Maharal in Prague. And I believe they even learnt Mishnayas together, and the Maharal told him to write a parish on the Mishnayas. So uh, I guess when the Maharal tells you to write a parish on the Mishnayas, so you write a parish on the Mishnayas. And he did, and it's the Tosas Yamthav. And he explains, the key to all of this is in one word, in Rashi. The Mishnah says, "Haomer, omer if a person says, your mercy extends to the mother bird. Who says where? Says Rashi, "Haomer omer bit filoso, in his prayers. The objectionable nature of ascribing a reason to the mitzvah of them of Kansipor, of sending away the mother bird is specifically in tefillah. and interestingly although it's, a, it's an entire separate discussion but just to foray there the Rambam the very same Rambam who in the Moran of provides reasons for mitzvahs but he codifies the Mishnah saying silence a person who says Kansipur is about Rachamim he codifies that in Hilchus Tefillah. Like Rashi, it's a halacha of tefillah. But but why should that make a difference? Says Tosis Yantov, you have to know your setting. You have to know what's appropriate for where you are. Ascribing and suggesting reasons for mitzvahs is acceptable. It's, it's even encouraged if you know what you're doing. It's even encouraged because it gives you further understanding, further insight into the mitzvah. But all of that is in the realm of or in the arena of the base HaMedrash. It's in the study hall. You're learning about the mitzvah. You're thinking about the mitzvah. And you can suggest. And maybe your suggestion has merit. But it stops when you come to Shul. Why? Because davening, when you're talking to Hashem, You're only entitled to base your tefillahs on things that you know for sure. And the reasons that are given for mitzvahs can never be known for sure. You're entitled to suggest them. And you may be right. It's not considered a bad thing to do, but it's not a basis for tefillah. Tefillah is based on rock-solid truths. And reasons suggested for mitzvahs are not that. And this is an idea... That is developed uh, even more by Rav Cook. That uh, in his Chiddushi goddess, Ein Ayah on on the Mishnah in Brachos there, on the Gemara in Brachos there. And Rav Cook says, and again, really, absolutely following on from what the Tosos Yom says. There's really two. There's two domains in, in religiously. There's the domain of Torah, and there's the domain of Tvila, of prayer. And not only are they different from a certain point of view, they're almost the opposite to each other. How so? Because when it comes to Torah, a person is meant to exercise their strengths and their capacities as far as they can. And that's what they're meant to do. They're meant to do, Torah is about everything that you can do in understanding and, and, and deepening your, your uh, understanding. Tefillah It's not a time where you focus on everything you can do. It's a time where you need to focus on everything you can't do, on everything that you need Hashem to help you for. This is really, it's the duality of man. Potent and capable on the one hand and uh, effectively helpless uh, on, on the other. And the two live side by side. But you've got to know what's appropriate for each setting. And therefore you're encouraged in the Vaisan Metrish. But when it comes to Davening, Davening is not a time where it's appropriate to present Akarish Baruch Hu with your doctoral thesis on the reason behind Kansipur. It's a time where you present him with your needs and your difficulties, and the focus is much more on on, on what you're, on, on, on where man stops, not where he keeps going. And that and, and it's it's not doing service. To Davening, if a person takes what should be the recognition of his shortcomings only to further display his brilliance and uh, theories and hypotheses, etc., Reverend Ari Kaplan, in a very wonderful uh, volume, actually, all of his volumes are uh, wonderful. Um, but he has a, a savior, I remember I saw it many years ago, on Yerushalayim, It's called Jerusalem, Eye of the Universe, I believe. And <clears throat> he, he notes in, in his own way that you have two types of stone in the Beis Hamikdash, and they're right next to each other, and, and we relate to them in the opposite way. The Sanhedrin sat in a chamber, which is called the, the Lishka it's the Chamber of Yun stone. And when you think about it, that is hardly uh, descriptive. I mean, it hardly distinguishes that chamber from any other chamber. I put it to you that if you're listening to this in Yerushalayim, and perhaps even beyond, you are also sitting in a chamber of hewn stone, uh, it, to the extent that stones were hewn, uh, at least on the outside, if not on the inside, even Yerushalmi. So of all things to call it, it, doesn't, it seems to lack imagination somewhat, the chamber of yun stone. But contrast it with the Mizbeach, where the Torah explicitly says, the stones that you use need to be avonim shlemos. They need to be complete. They cannot be cut or shaped in any way. That's, a, that, that's really the contrast here. And what's the point? The point is, says Rav Kaplan, this is, is in a sense, his harmony with what Rav Kuk is saying. It's the two realms of Torah and Tfilah and their neighbors. I mean, the, the, the Lishka is where the Sanhedrin sits. It's on the premises of the Beis HaMikdash. The two go side by side, but they're not the same thing, and the emphasis is different in each. When it comes to the Sanhedrin, that's their job is to shape and to cut and to impose and to be Mahadesh and to decree and to institute and, and so on and so forth. So what what we do to stones, I mean that's what that's what they're doing, to, to, to legislation. Interestingly, gazera. <laughs> Because there is a decree. Lixor means to means to cut, but that is right next to the to the mizbeach, and the mizbeach is the center of avoda. And when it comes to avoda, you know what the Torah says: we're not interested in you cutting or shaping anything. Leave the stones as they are. The avoda is where the emphasis is on how how little man really is capable of doing in the world, certainly without divine assistance. Leave the stones as they are. There's no shaping here. Tavonim Shlemus. And thus do the two go side by side. Certainly things to, to think about as we as we embark on, on the year in this way. Both of Torah learning, but of course headed for days very much of, of Tvila, uh, to be able to be aware of what is appropriate and what is really being emphasized in each of these places to make sure that we make maximum use of all of them. We'll leave it over here for this evening. I wish you all a good evening, a wonderful week ahead. See you next week in Mitesha. Oh. <laughs>